This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, play script, direct. the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located on 42nd Street, where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway all come together to present the magic, the education, the culture, and the excitement that only live theatre can bring. Most of you know that the American Theatre Wing founded the Antoinette Perry Tony Awards. But I'd like to add that they were created not just for the longest run or the box office smash, but to reward the achievement of excellence in the craft of theater. And so it is with those that receive it. They, it is a theater's highest honor, and it is coveted by everyone. That out of the Wing's early programs, we continue with that which we started a long, long time ago. We are and have been a long run. We started with the American Theatre Wing's hospital program, which sent live theater to hospitals, veteran centers, and now we've added aid centers to the program. We continue doing that with professional theater and cabaret entertainment so that those that can't come to the theater have a taste of what live theater can do to ease any kind of pain that they might have. And then we have a Saturday Theater for Children program. Brings theater into the public schools so that children at the very earliest age can see what theater is all about. It comes into the auditoriums and they line up on Saturday mornings and they pay for it, which we feel is a very important part of the program so that they make a commitment it also takes in the community as well, because the parents and the parent-teachers associations all gather together to help in this program. Then our newest program is called Introduction to Broadway, and it really is that, and it's a, a wonderful introduction. It's in cooperation with the Board of Education, High School Division, and the American Theatre Wing, and those wonderful Broadway producers who have with us enabled tens of thousands of school children to see their first Broadway show. They too pay for that, a very minimal rate, but they pay for the ticket. And as a special bonus, the wing has arranged for performers and as well as the house managers and stage managers to speak with them after the show so they can have a role model to adhere to. And then there are these seminars which are coming to you. We've been doing that for over 17 years, and the who's who of theater 
has been a part of it. Uh, today's seminar is on the playwright-director. We, we do one on the performers, we do one on the production, on unions and guilds, and on design. And before I go any further, I'm going to turn this over to our very capable co-moderators, and they in turn will introduce this exceptional panel to you. Jean Darable, who is a member of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing, but also one of the most knowledgeable women in the theatre that I know, because she's done almost everything in the theatre. And George White, who is president of the O'Neill Center, and is also teaches at Yale, and is a director in his own right, and is pretty knowledgeable, I would say. And so, George and Jean, would you please take over now? Um, well, I, I will start by introducing, uh, on my immediate right, Susan Birkenhead, who is the lyricist for Jelly's Last Jam. And next to her is Horton Foote, who is the playwright and director of Roads to Home that is currently playing off-Broadway at the Lambs Theatre. Jean, you're not wearing a white hat today. I'm disappointed. <laughs> um, I thought I'd try this one, but I want to ask everybody, does your head swell or do your hat shrink? <laughs> <laughs> because this one was, was perfectly comfortable two months ago, hardly fits me today. Willie Hobbin, is that the correct way to spell uh, your name? Wiley Housen. Wiley Hobbin. Um, he's a theatrical agent at ICM with a client list which includes co-panelist George Wolfe. And, of course, everybody knows what wonderful work they both did on, on our current hit. Um, then Luther Henderson, musical adapter of Jelly's Last Jam, is is a very famous man in his own right and for many, many years. <clears throat> R.J. Barry. P. <laughs> P. Well, this is rather, rather small for my failing eyesight. <clears throat> P.J. Um, Barry, the playwright and director of the upcoming A Distance from Calcutta. Uh, tell me something about that. It's the first time I've heard of it. Uh, it's opening at, uh, in January at the York Theatre up on 90th it? Street. Yes. Really? What is it about? What kind of a show is it? It's, uh, it's a uh, comedy drama, and it's about a firebrand of a woman who falls in love with the wrong man. Oh, good for but her. But he turns out to be the right man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Um, George C. Wolf, playwright and director of Joey's Last Jam. Uh, thank you. I think we'll start, if we may, with uh, Mr. Foote, uh, with a question of um, how you first started. Uh, heaven knows you have a huge body of work behind you, but uh, how did you become a playwright? What made you become a playwright? How did you get started? Well, uh, for pragmatic reasons. I was an actor and uh, belonged to 
what we would call now off, off, off Broadway company, called the American Actors Company. We were over a little garage, and um, we wanted to um, explore American material. We felt that uh, it wasn't being done properly, and a wonderful woman named Mary Hunter Wolfe was kind of the spearhead of the company, and uh, Agnes DeMille came down to work with us. And we were doing improvisations to let each of us know about different sections of the country. And I was doing things about Texas, and Agnes said one day, I think you should try writing. Well, I thought, well, all right. And I wrote a play, which a one-act play, with the lead for myself. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Uh, Robert Coleman came down and saw it and very kindly was encouraging. I thought this fairly easy and um, I went to Texas and wrote a full-length play with the lead for myself. <laughs> and uh, Brooks Atkinson came down to see this and was very laudatory about the production and all the acting except for one. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, I decided I would show him and never write again and uh, be the greatest actor in the American theater. <laughs> but that summer I went away and played a lot of parts and got the acting out of my system and for good or bad I, I became obsessed with writing and uh, worked at it ever since. Where were the theaters in Texas that you did this? Uh, there was here in New York. Oh, it was, but I had the garage. Uh, uh, 60, 69th Street. Uh -huh. But you said you went back to Texas. Hey, where my home is, I went and, back. And, to, and where was the play done in Texas? It wasn't done there. I wrote it there. Oh, you and wrote I, it there. And I came back it. and did it here. Ah, okay. With the okay. company. When you first started to write plays, did you send some to John Golden? No, I never did, Gene. I didn't dare. Okay. It, it was. It was. Uh, well, somebody <laughs> sent me your plays. Did they? I was working for John. I know you were. And I liked very much what you wrote, and I wrote and told you so. I know I was, that. I was very flattered and very felt very good about it. It was very helpful to me. <clears throat> Susan, what uh, what is your story? Um, a strange one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> better and better. Um, I too did a lot of acting and, and singing and um, was terrified of the whole audition process and sort of ran away um, and, and had a lot of babies. <laughs> and I was just sort of this wife and mother, um, always doing a little acting on the side and doing a little bit of writing. And my first husband ran a, a, um, a summer theater, the Cape Cod Melody Tent. And they had children's um, musicals on the weekend. And somebody came up to me, knew that I was a musician, and said, uh, can you write a score for Rumpelstiltskin by Tuesday? <laughs> <laughs> and I was so stupid, I said, sure. Um, and I did. And I went on and wrote many, got paid for none of them, never thought that anybody would possibly want to pay me for anything that I had written. Uh, but Several years later, the husband of somebody who had written libretto for one was on a plane and met a producer, and, and they talked about one particular thing, and I got a letter in the mail that said, I would like to option this for NBC. And that never got done, but it got me an agent uh, who said, what do you want to do? And I said, write for the theater, more than anything in the world. And he brought me to the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, Lehman Engel. And all of a sudden, 
I got a phone call in my first year from Mary Rogers, who had read my lyrics somewhere, and said, uh, I've been asked to be one of the writers of, of this musical for Broadway, and I read some of your work, and I've never done this, but I was just wondering, and I said, yes. <laughs> she said, don't you want to know what it is? I said, no, 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 it's okay. Um, and that was working. Um, and then through Mary, I met Julie Stein, began to work with him. Things just happened. And I met George Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very nice segue. George, yes. how, did you, how did you get started? I started writing, well, I was in college in California, and I was, um, actually I started out as an actor and a designer, and then I started to direct, and, and I wanted to, uh, toward the end I was, I was starting to do another place about, quote unquote, the black experience, but at the time this was like 73, 74, 75, all the all the types of plays that were available to me that were about black people were very stylist, they were very realistic. And that didn't, and that energy was not very attractive to me. It, 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 it just didn't seem to be the way that my brain worked theatrically. So I started writing to give myself some work as a director, fundamentally. And then through the course of writing, I went, oh, I like this, you know. And it was, so that's really how I started to write, just as a director. And then. What was the first thing that you sort of did? I wrote this play called Up for Grabs, which was uh, the story of. Joe Thomas, who was given away at the eight, at, uh, at one day after he was born, he was placed inside of a soundproof booth where he was given nothing but cereal, cereal boxes to read. And, and, and all of a sudden, at the age of 21, he was released into this world called Up for Grabs, which was actually a game show. But because he had never experienced life, he was going through it as if this was life. And it was sort of like this strange, very, you know. That was the first thing. So you see, it was <laughs> so there were no walls and there was no couch and there was, no, you know, <laughs> it was this whole other thing. Okay. Where was so that done? In uh, at the in uh, the Claremont Colleges, and it ended up winning an award. So I said, "Oh, okay, you know, this is nice." Did you direct it? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Okay. PJ. God. <laughs> the first, uh, I was in the sixth grade. I wrote a play called Why Mothers Get Gray. I wrote it, I directed it, I played the lead, I put it on in my cellar. I had all the kids from the neighborhood charge 10 cents to get in. And get a lot of money. Uh, that's, that's the way it began. I was very initiated into, I was a, like a song and dance kid. And, uh, that's how it, that's really how it began. And uh, I stopped writing after that. I never wrote again until uh, I was in the Korean War and I came back from there and I wrote a novel and it was terrible. And I wrote another novel and it was terrible. And I wrote another novel and somebody said, it's not bad, but why don't you turn it into a play? So that's what I did. And from then I began, uh, I just really began to write. And I think I had to, I was learning a lot about writing a writing plays, and uh, as time so went how on, were I, you learning <coughs> about writing plays? Were you studying? Were you no? I, was, I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't studying much. I was just. I remember going to the University of California in Berkeley uh, under the GI Bill. But I wasn't. Uh, I came to New York. I worked with a theater company. It was uh, John Cassavetes and that whole group then. And it was like a lot of workshop stuff. And then as time went on, I got married and I had. Uh, children, three children, 
And uh, I was writing plays, and I couldn't get them on. It was a, it was a son of a gun. I, I just couldn't get anybody interested. So I formed a theater company called the Fulton Theater Company, where I directed my plays and uh, wrote them. And uh, that's how I began. And then I became director of the Hudson Guild Theater after that. But that's how I began, by forming a company and getting the plays on. Where'd you get the money to form a company? Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> there was a lot of... Uh, sometimes I got donations from people. It was really out of my own pocket, money that I saved. And then I got grants from the New York State Council on the Arts because I, you know, you had to do it on your own and from the box office that was coming in. So it was really, uh, it was really a, lot, a lot of hard work and a lot of... Uh, that's the way you do getting, it, though. Hmm? That's the way to do it. And that was that was the only. I mean, it was the only way. Uh, and so that uh, that just opened up a lot of doors. And then, uh, as I said, I went and I ran the Hudson Guild Theater, and that opened up more. But that's where I began to play. And the first play that I would call a professional was called uh, "She Played Good Piano," which was about an Irish wake. <laughs> uh, did you? Uh, but you did some a lot of acting too. Yeah, I do, I've done a lot of acting. I still do a lot of acting. I do a lot of. Uh, commercials and stuff. But yes, I'd done all three, which has been <laughs> one has balanced off the other on many occasions. Well, that seems to be the tradition of uh, going back to probably, if we knew Aeschylus probably did the same thing. Yeah. Well, um, Horton did it, so yeah, I, well, exactly. I, stayed out, I stayed out of my place most of the time, Horton. Ms. <laughs> Anderson, what about you? I realize it's a, it's a different thing, but it's a different thing. What should I say? How did I sit, how shall we talk about writing music? Yeah, and start. Yeah, okay. Sure. I would guess that the reason that I started writing music was because along the way it became evident that I was never going to be able to top Art Tatum or, or Horowitz or Mead Lux Lewis or any of those guys because I didn't have the, the, the character to go and practice that much. And Plus, that tied up with the fact that I had the good luck to be sponsored by a man by the name of Duke Ellington, who uh, decided, since I was a graduate of the Juilliard Institute, that I should be his classical arm, as he so naively put it. Um, and um, I think I took the line of least resistance, and um, I guess I kind of backed into writing because... I found that it was, it was a good thing to be able to write things and have other people play them, do their thing my way. <laughs> so um, I, I don't want to go into a whole uh, uh, thing about it, but I would, guess, I would guess that I'm writing music because of, of uh, Duke Ellington, George Gershwin, uh, Richard Rogers and uh, various people along the way. Well, they, the Duke Ellington was, in effect, your mentor. Yes, I'd say so. Uh -huh. Yes, he, um, uh, his son and I, Mercer, went to school together, and uh, we uh, hung out a lot. Went to these various nightclub spots and listened to the band and various other places that weren't where the band was. I won't go into that. <laughs> but. Um, and uh, 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 I pre uh, prevailed upon my parents to, uh, to send me to the Juilliard. I, I was going to be a mathematician. I, I was a good boy in school, and I accidentally got 100% in a geometry regents, you see. <laughs> and um, I thought that was the message. I thought that was, you know, 
from Garcia or something. At any rate, uh, I soon found in City College after two years that uh, it required more than just looking cursorily at the books, you know, uh, and a half hour before we went to class was not going to make it, you know. So uh, I persuaded them to s send me to the jury. I had to have a degree. In my family, not having a college degree was to court, uh, uh, you know, excommunication or something. I don't know what could happen. <laughs> so that I had to have a college degree. So that's how I got into the Juilliard. I'm still at the same time very much interested in, uh, in, 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 the, in the jazz music and in the, in the extension of it. I think this is what I got mainly from Duke Ellington was his, his desire to stretch, to put it into different forms. He wanted to be, he wanted to have, he wanted to be in, uh, 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 in, in, in the mainstream, but not just in the quote-unquote black mainstream, in the mainstream of the world. And I think this is what he did with a lot of his music. And I'm, uh, I'm thinking that doing Jelly's Last Jam, I'm making a big jump here, right? The fine jump. Doing Jelly's Last Jam uh, and finding, how shall I say, a road through a young man named George C. Wolfe through which I could travel all this stuff in my head about making this jazz music say something, do something, be something in a venue other than that from the, from the tenderloin from which it came. It's something that I think that Duke Ellington would really have wanted to do, would really like to do. And I, I like to think that, that Jelly Roll Morton, in a kind of a reverse kind of a way uh, with me helped him to do that. Great. Um, there are a lot of um, agent jokes, as we know. Uh, but uh, um, jokes? A lot of joke agents. <laughs> <laughs> All I am is a straight <laughs> And that, But there are also, um, there are, uh, you know, there, uh, but uh, Wiley, do you, did you start out wanting to be a fireman, a milkman, whatever, and then turned out this way? Or were you an actor? Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Fortunately, I, I never had delusions of being an actor because there was just obviously no way that was ever going to happen. I became an agent kind of by accident. I'm very you know, happy to say that the first job that I had in the theater uh, was from Hal Prince, and he asked me to be the production assistant on the Broadway production of Evita, and... We had met when I was working at an opera company in Chicago called the Lyric Opera. So originally I wanted to be an opera singer, and then gradually it was just like from music to opera to theater to straight plays. And through a kind of a circuitous route, I got sent to ICM in 1981 and interviewed with an, a very fine agent named Bridget Ashenberg there. And they put me in the mailroom, and I was there for a couple of months, and then I became her secretary, and I was her secretary for really quite a long time and and then eventually was promoted. What did you do with Howard Prince when he said you started? Well, I was, I was the product, they had a position on all of his musicals called The Observer and it's I think probably still continues to this day and people like Frit, I think Fritz Holt and a lot of people who ended up producing and doing musicals have had this position and I just Observed. I just watched how you put together a Broadway musical, and and at some point when it was trying out in L.A., I, I actually took 
some of his notes and sat next to him and just kind of watched him react to what was going on on stage. And Ruth Mitchell was right there next to him. And it was an extraordinary experience, extraordinary first experience. I remember the opening night of of the show in L.A., Ken Billington, who was the lighting designer, said to me, well, this is it. It doesn't get any better than this, so just remember that. And then, back down to the bottom, you know, one tiny step at a time. Mm -hmm. Wonderful experience. It was wonderful. Really wonderful. What was Duke Ellington like during those days? What was Duke Ellington like during yeah. those days? Oh, I, I, I have to give you a very biased opinion. I loved him. What can I tell you? Oh, this is good. the way it was. Good. Uh, I did too. Huh? I did too. Uh, he 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 worked. Uh, well, for instance, uh, my first real engagement with him was doing uh, what he called his extended pieces: uh, Harlem, New World of Coming, and uh, 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 Night Creature, uh, for a, a, a sort of a simple concerto grosso, which is kind of a sort of, a, for his orchestra and symphony orchestra. Uh, many years ago, with the, with the, uh, 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 at Carnegie Hall. Now, for that, I had to travel with him. I had to travel with him, I had to go around. At the, at the, at the time, he had, and uh, Strayhorn, had uh, gotten a very nice job for me to do uh, was, uh, as Lena Horn's uh, uh, conductor and arranger, and I traveled around with her for a while. But, this was during a period of hiatus with Lena, and he would work. Go to his ba go to the theater, go to the nightclub, work till three, four o'clock in the morning, stay up and work until you know five, ten, have some breakfast, maybe take a nap and go work around. I've been, I've seen, I've traveled with him working, you know, three days in a row. It seems to me without sleep. I finally would. I, I, he did. I was, um, you know. Even in my youth, I found that I was not physically up to this, <laughs> this kind of rigor. We're lucky. But what what I found about him was that he was absolutely intrepid. Something that we would know. I, as Strayhorn and I would often talk about. You know, surely he didn't mean to do that. This must be wrong. He couldn't. It, it's not. You know. Or you go to a re recording session, and it'd be something. You know, so blatantly. It's. It's. You know. It's just wrong. Wrong. That's all. It's not even genius. You know. It's just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but he would decide that that's what. He's going to, and somehow or other, would manage to melt it down. Would manage to incorporate. Would manage to make you think that this was the greatest thing that ever happened to him. Right. Uh, he did this with all of his people. With his, his, I think that he was the greatest composer the world may have ever known because he didn't just compose with music. He didn't just compose with notes and things. He composed with people. He used me and Strayhorn and Johnny Hodges and everybody else. A, a lot of the musicians who thought that they were playing themselves, do you mm -hmm. see? They thought that they were doing their own thing when they played these solos. Mm -hmm. They even went so far as to go out and get their own bands to play with it. Well, but they found out that they weren't playing themselves and they had to come right. back to the band. <laughs> you know, since we're lucky enough to have these three collaborators here, I'd like to start to say, how did they all get together? Who came to who first? 
on Jelly Roll. And then I'd like to pick up on that too for Susan because um, a lot of people wonder what comes first, the lyrics or the music too, which is all part of this collaboration too, if you want to address both that and how you all got... How did you, how did you get together? How did right. you start Jelly Roll? Who? Well, there was a... There was a workshop that was done when the show was called Mr. Jelly Lord that, that Margot Line and Pam Coslow did with, uh, and, and Gregory was involved and a bunch of other people were involved. Um, and I believe that you were somewhat a part of that. Yes, I was involved peripherally. In so then, so, so, and, and I, I was not there and Susan wasn't there. And then so it sort of died down and they tried a bunch of book writers. Then they... Uh, found out about me and then they called me up and I came on board as the book writer and I was working with Susan on another project um, <laughs> which is a journey unto itself yeah. and so that I immediately obviously it didn't come out well truly it didn't yeah. and I'm very glad that in some respect you know that it didn't happen but at, at the same time she and I then formed a wonderful working relationship and uh, we uh, we started you know working trying to take the songs and, and examine them ourselves and, and you know, lyrics here, song, what, what, what about, what about. And we were working with someone who was sort of a Jelly Roll Morton expert but really didn't know theater. And then, uh, then, then all of a sudden it was like, ding, Luther Henderson. And, and then who, 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 who knows theater, who knows Jelly, and who knows so many other things. So it was that sort of, you know... A, this, this, I don't know how you describe it, this very sort of um, three, three, uh, I don't know, it, it was like we worked individually, but we were also the same thing, the same creature. Yes. I mean, I, I would, I would say we were fingers on the same hand, mm -hmm. the three of us. You know, and then at one point, then I was, I was then, I, I was then hired on as the, the director on the project, and then that sort of changed things somewhat, but not, 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 not really, because by that time we were all, there was this creature that was working on the show. That was not me, that was not her, that was not him, it was just How us. long ago was that when you first, three first came together? Oh, God. Almost, Two what, and half? four and a half years. Four. Four and a half Isn't years. That long? It's been that long time. Yeah. <laughs> so that was four it, years before we saw each other. Yes. yes. Exactly. And then there were there were various workshops that happened. There was a there was a, a show that we did at the Marte Forum, and, and and one of the things which I think which was so wonderful about the show that it was it was nurtured every single step of the way because we knew what we didn't want it to be and we knew what it was, but it was going down a dark tunnel finding it and not trying to have it be la di da di da di da da. But wanted to figure out how the music and how the texture of this man's life could exist with another level of grit, much the way it did, and 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 try to find the texture that this music comes from, as opposed to just doing the music, also finding the cultural and emotional and psychological texture that went along with it. So it was a slow evolutionary process very much through so. a series of yeah. yeah. There were things which which were very clear from the very beginning, and then there were other things that were ruling in order to try to find the peace that was that was that was leading you down this tunnel what was clear at the beginning and what was not a little bit more specific well that he was dead <laughs> and that and that this evening was a night of redemption that um, that somehow it was about figuring out that that the relationship between pain and brilliance and isolation 
and 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 I also knew that it was it, it, it could also be about simply because his journey seemed to follow in a in a very fascinating way with, with him going from the south up to Chicago this sort of journey that I don't know it was there was something about this piece what was about America in some very strange way it was not just Jelly Roll Morton and it was not just jazz but his journey was the journey of America and and that his sins are the sins of America and his brilliance is the brilliance of America okay that's a that's a big yeah. encompassing theme right? yeah and then, so you had to you had to bring forth what he was saying. Yeah, within your lyrics. Exactly. <laughs> it was, Luther and I have a joke. Of, <laughs> every so often, George would say, "Now, this number is the number upon which everything the whole turns. Thing was. <laughs> everything rests." And I say, "Right." <laughs> How come, George? There are five or six or seven That's of those close. numbers. Uh, no, but this is the one. Right? <laughs> the real one. This is the real one, right. The other thing uh, about it, well, two things about it were, were quite difficult. First of all, Morton's music is not inherently theatrical. And Luther was required to take this oh, as source material, really, and create a whole new theatrical score, which was a wonderful luxury for me because... Initially, I had music on cassettes, Morton's music as played, and instrumental and, music, exactly. Yeah, and I have vocal to music. grab a clarinet line from here and, a, and try yeah. to fashion a song form. Uh, when Luther began to work with us, we worked as a composer and lyricist and book writer, and we would sit together and discuss the moment and knew what had to happen in the moment. And we would just all do it like that. It was like having a composer, in fact. Um, so it was quite wonderful. That's it. Turned out to be yeah. quite, quite wonderful too. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the advantage of having three people. Yeah. I was going to ask you, Horton Foot, if um, the, uh, right, you have you're two and one, um, and uh, there is, uh, and I, I see it in three people here today. Um, there is again um, a. Um, a theory in the theater that playwrights should not direct their own work. Uh, indeed, that they do not be unable to step back uh, with that. And uh, I wondered if you would address that a little bit. Uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah. Obviously, you're doing it, but... Uh, uh, I, I think it depends... For myself, it depends on the play that I'm involved with. In other words, I wouldn't like to direct all my plays. Uh, I have chosen not to direct my plays mostly. There are certain plays that mean a great deal to me and uh, of mine that I, I think I have a kind of a real emotional affinity for. And if I feel that, then, then I take the job. You don't think that that robs you of objectivity? Well, that's up... I mean, uh, you, you can also say that uh, a director... Uh, sometimes the playwrights don't think the director has objectivity. They get very subjective themselves and impose their own subjectivity on the play. Uh, so that's, you know, that's basically a question of, in my own case, mostly the directors I've worked with, I've had enormous rapport with. And I've always felt that they had uh, great respect for the writer, which I th 
because it's a fundamental credo with me. I, I'm against wars in theater. I think that the, we are a collaborative medium, and I think it's time we all learn to get along together. And I think that one ego dominating the other is just um, indefensible and, and counterproductive. Yet the lament that we hear so often is that the playwright falls in love with his own words and doesn't have that objectivity. And, and it's very hard to overcome that where the director is seeing that it would play better if, if you cut perhaps even whole scenes of it. Well, and that's where the conflict comes in. I think often, and I think that's because often the playwright has cut himself off from other areas of theater. I, I was an actor, so I understand the acting problems, mm -hmm. have directed, and I think playwrights should get in there and mix up and do all kinds of things. George Wolfe <laughs> is a very good yes. example of that. Uh, they, they should, you wouldn't ask a, a composer to compose a symphony without knowing the, the, the instruments of the orchestra in some fashion, some mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Also, I think that a play is it, it's sort of a child, and it sort of looks like you, but it's not you. And I think that, that if you, that, that, that as soon as you create it, it's no longer yours. So, so, so that therefore, and you're, you're, you're now in charge of parenting it as a director. So, so that therefore you have to allow its own personality to exist and assert itself and realize how, oh, I see I'm in here in this respect, but it's very different from me in this other respect. So, so that therefore, by, by not viewing it as you, but as something that you were a part in the birthing of, in some strange way, allows you, I think, to slice it, rearrange it, and fix it in a way so that every time you're cutting it, you aren't cutting your arm or your heart or your soul. You're cutting it. Yeah. How do you feel about the right to have your, your words cut from the play? Well, if it's not working, it's not working. I mean, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, I'm just saying that. But I think any knowledgeable playwright's going to come to that conclusion. If there's any sense, as, as soon as the director does. Uh, also, there are, there are jewels, and then there's this gunk around it. And if you can clear off the gunk, the jewel is going to soar. You know what I mean? And so, so some of that gunk is you, and the jewel is also you. You know, so you just go, and then all of a sudden, and, you, and we, over and over, I mean, there, there are like, we, we, in Jelly Heaven, there are 847 <laughs> versions <laughs> of this show. <laughs> Brilliant numbers that were not right. Actually, it's 849. <laughs> <laughs> but but that, that takes, I would think, a certain amount, both of objectivity on the playwright's part, and it's a great deal of experience to have the confidence and the kind of security to be able to cut the gunk around. But, but you're obeying your subject. You aren't obeying you. That's right. You're obeying the play. You're not obeying you. I mean, I, you know, I think that, 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 you know, that I have a very large ego, but I use the ego to serve the play, not to serve myself. Good. Because it's really not, it's, you know, it's not about me. You know, if, I, if, if I wanted to be about me, I'd go stand in front of a mirror and go, ooh, you're wonderful, you're wonderful. But it's not about that. It's about the work. Yeah. You know, it's and also, this other thing. I, I feel, I don't mean to imply that that can't be interpretations of a play by either actor or directors, because they can be. I know that in, in Trip to Bountiful, it was first up by Lillian Gish, who's brilliant and was extraordinary. And then 30 years later, Geraldine Page did the same part. Well, you can't imagine two were different talents. But as far as I'm concerned, they were both valid, both moving, and uh, illuminated my play and taught me a great deal. Were there any plays that you wish that you had directed because you felt it hadn't come out the way you wanted it? Not really. Uh -huh. Not I wouldn't blame the director that I think it was my fault. Did you ever bring in Ellington to criticize? Do I do what? 
Did you ever bring in Duke Ellington to listen to your work? Did he ever criticize oh, it? Oh, you mean when, I was, when he was alive and I was working? Right. Uh, 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 yes, and he did, because I have... Uh, the, the one criticism that I remember is uh, that uh, I should be sure not to write too many things for these wonderful improvisational people to read. <laughs> and uh, um, the reason I remember that is because working with George Wolfe, I envision him as a kind of a Duke Ellington in a way because he enjoys, which is wonderful, doing things and making things happen out of out of, out of what's there. I have to I have more I have to have a little more structure. That structure is not always exactly the the, the right thing to have, and I need sometimes to have impinged upon me a little what he used to call chaos. You know? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. That's literal, not yeah, just yeah. The initials. But, Jay, what, what is your take on uh, directing your own work? Well, I, I kind of agree with, with uh, Horton, and I've had instances where I've, I've worked with directors and they've been fine, and uh, I, uh, I had directed a play that had been done elsewhere at Long Island Stage. I directed it at York Theatre last year, and it, it went very well, but it had already been done. But anyway, this new play that I'm going to do in January there, this... What's the name of it? It's called A Distance from Calcutta. And this all came up, and it was like within a... We were talking about this. It never happens. I finished this play in May, and it's going to be done in January, because plays usually take about four years to get on. Yeah. Anyway, this happened, and uh, it was just, do you want to direct? And I said, yes. <clears throat> and it was one of those... It was just one of those things, and I knew it was right, and I too... I'm still an actor as well, but that helps a great deal. And the the actors that did this reading were the actors that I wanted to do it because I know them. I'd worked with them. We'd worked in many situations, or they'd been in plays of mine and stuff. And it all was, uh, you know, it just it was just right. And I don't. I'm pretty ruthless with with cutting. I'm. Uh, I mean, if it, <laughs> if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know, you just yeah. say. Let's go, you know, or um, or sometimes, which is interesting to me. I was I was doing a play out in California, and this woman wanted to cut, and I said, "Wait a minute, wait a minute." I said, uh, "That doesn't seem right. Let's wait a couple of days, you know, which which I find happens. Let's wait a couple. It's really wild cuts, and I usually can feel it. It usually hits me, or it's usually up there on the stage. But a lot depends when you get it when the audience comes in." You know, you just yeah. there it all clicks. Mm -hmm. But I, uh, I no, I'm very comfortable because I've done a lot of it. I mean, I don't feel uh, I don't feel thrown by it, and uh, and I think as we all know, when you get those actors, the right, you know, that's casting is a big, mm -hmm. is really makes a lot of difference. Do you tend to use the same people in in your readings? that you then go on for the run? Do you have a set of people that you call upon? Well, How I, important is that for I, I think that all play? depends. I mean, I've just, there's a, by now there are a lot of actors that I've worked with or I've worked in plays of mine. Are you know, I mean, like this, uh, <clears throat> someone like Ann Petoniak, whom I've worked with or has worked in plays of mine, and then suddenly I thought, my God, Ann's so right for this. You know, it doesn't mean you're going to get them or, the, or your first choice. But... Uh, yeah, I, I just think, yeah, it's wonderful to have, you know, to, to <laughs> with a little age, right you know, a lot beginning. more actors, and you have a, you know, you can <clears throat> go to them, and uh, a lot of them, 
you know, particularly I want to work in your work or whatever. So it's, uh, but it makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. so, so speaking of casting, it brings you around to the agents. And uh, do you put together packages, Wiley, or do you, uh, I mean, do you do both? Well, you know. I mean, when you see directing and, or a playwright wants to direct his own play, and how does that go? Uh, rather than talk about packages, which, I mean, it's a popular agent sort of thing to talk about. I don't know that it's necessarily a healthy thing, and I don't think it really happens that way. But but I do think that the the matching of writer and director is probably the most important creative issue that you face when when you when you're trying to make a show happen, and it often happens kind of haphazardly and by accident. And often when a writer, I think doesn't have the success that they should have fairly early on. Maybe it's because they haven't found that right interpreter of their work yet. I mean, there's one client in particular that I've been really looking for years for the right, just the right director to, to interpret his work. And then when you get into a situation where they're both a writer and a director, I mean, not every writer can, can direct his own work successfully. And I, I think that, that George's ability to shift from one mode into another is unique uh, in in my experience because it's it's the very different kinds of crafts really and states of mind um, and not every writer can do it I would like to uh, also say ask uh, Horton Foote um, and and we can pass this around in terms of now that we knew how you all started um, how would you what would you advise young people um, in terms of getting going as a playwright. Well, people not so young that want to go into this. <laughs> people, yes, people, people of any well, age. Well, uh, advice is cheap and free, you know. No? Um, Fair enough. I hate to use the word luck because I really don't get, I really believe in it, but uh, let's say circumstances play a, a, a large part. I think, uh, because I know many talented people that have just gone around in circles and circles and circles, and I don't know what would have happened to me if Robert Coleman hadn't come to see my first play. I mean, I didn't plan that. And I think more and more I find that that kind of circumstance happened to someone that helped them move on. Um, I guess the main thing is that I do feel that keep at it and not get discouraged. That's what I tell my daughter, who's a playwright. Um, and build up a body of work, because I have things that I've written 15 years ago that are just being done now. And uh, also, I think today, with off-Broadway off and off-Broadway and the regional theaters, that there are many opportunities for playwrights that didn't exist when I came along, because then it was the, really, Broadway was our only kind of outlet. And um, so, I, I also, I think it's important early on to, to get established with a theater of any kind so that you kind of get to know the workings of a theater and a company and uh, get the chance to do many things in, in a company. Not just be the playwright, but uh, maybe build some scenery and act a few parts and try directing. I agree with you. All act. That all crossover in yeah, theater. Do everything. Especially if you're a writer, if you if you act, even if you do it badly, act. If you direct, I would also say to do costumes and set, because if you find yourself in the in the presence of a director 
or a designer who says this can't be done. You can say, oh yes, it can, because so I know important. how to do da 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 da. Because you you have to defend yourself against bad artists who are working on your work, and the best way to defend yourself is by knowing something about their various crafts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Horton, you said before about you said the, the luck came in, but but your play got on, and somehow that got on, and that's the most important thing is to get that play on yes. 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 in front of an audience, attached to a theater company, or yes. start your own. Yes. Yes. But it it means nothing until you you get them on and you get them out you know, on the yeah. scripts. And then about yes. having what about having someone see it? So how do you get them? To come how, and how do you see get it. to yeah, that no. point of being you, Well, I think you get. I think you get to that. You mean somebody with with some that's influence or something? That's right. That will, I think you get because you do one, then you do two, and then you do three, and then they begin you know, to review them. Would the you go to see? Around. Yeah. Uh, would you go to see a storefront? It's a very small theater? community, you know, and everybody knows each other. And when something's happening out there, whether it's a brand new little off off Broadway company or whatever, the, you hear about it and you get down there, and if the work is good. The word gets and another thing that young playwrights have, which in my day we didn't have, uh, is the process of readings or workshops or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, I was very much against them when I first heard about them, but I must say I've experienced now several of these uh, reading uh, episodes. What was the reason for being against them? I, I thought it was kind of a lazy way and kind of a postponement of, the, mm-hmm. of getting, get, getting the job done. But uh, I must say I find them have been personally valuable, and I see for young writers this, they're invaluable mm-hmm. because they often get very experienced actors to do a reading that they couldn't get to perform the work, and they can learn, I think, many things. Do you cast actors for readings? Well, sometimes we do actually <coughs> have readings. Do they need an agent as well? For, uh, I'm sorry. The does actor an actor or an actress need an agent in order to come to uh, get a part in a reading? In a reading, no, mm-hmm. I don't think you do. If you if you yeah. know people in the community, it's, it's almost you know. kind of a family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, okay. you know. sort of know but that, call your cousins. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the readings, I agree, and 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 it can get healthy. It also can get really wild after a while because if you read a play over, you know, you can get so attached because a, a play is to get up there on the stage, and in yeah. reading, sometimes you can get very unfocused because of a some actor who was so great, you know, doing a reading, but mm-hmm. it's. It's got to get up on its feet. I mean, it's got to get out there on its feet. And I, I, I think they're good, but sometimes I've found that they go on too long until you're read to death. <laughs> <laughs> you can, and they can distort. Yeah, yeah they can distort. Mm-hmm. Or you can, you know, just because of... Uh, How do you feel or, about readings, Jean? Did you use them? Yes, always. We always began a play with the cast sitting around a table and reading and discussing the play and the characters and the situations and sort of getting them clear in everyone's mind before we went any further and sometimes we would read two or three times before we got on our feet and I found that it was very very helpful I think what you said is very important it would take two or three days sometimes Sometimes. But that's great. That's in rehearsal, though. I think that's a. That's a yes, that's yeah. That's, a, that's that's fine. That's, that's a part of it. That's a part of the process. I think it's Susan. also difficult uh, with a musical sometimes now because so much of a musical is visual mm-hmm. and physical. Yes. Uh, yeah. We had a, a number of experiences. Sat and read, and our show on a page looks most peculiar. I mean, now, you know, we have stage directions and whatnot, but but it's very difficult to do unless you get people up on their feet. And God bless the Mark Taper Forum because they gave us 
workshops where no, where we had works. actors to use his tools. Did that take place in New York? The workshop? The, the, no, in Los Angeles. Los Angeles. And then, in this past fall, there was a there was a workshop in New York, in New which York. was mainly which was about the work, but it was also about the hype and the money. So, the, but, but 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 in Los Angeles, it it, it was about the material mm -hmm. yeah. exclusively, mm -hmm. exclusively. Mm -hmm. Whereas the one in this past fall was about show and tell time. So so, so you you know so, so that you can't really explore the material. You can somewhat. But there's always the awareness that at any given moment, all these people with money are going to come in and go. You know, so, so, so there's a whole other, uh, other, uh, other rhythm and, and thought process going on when you're trying to solve problems and then when you're trying to look good. And, yeah. Yeah. you know. Yeah. What was the reading from hell? You <laughs> well, it was, it was one of those readings that should not have happened because we were halfway, I'm, as I look back on it now, I think that we, we were halfway through abandoning a certain direction and on our way to a new direction and we were somewhere in the middle so that we were not very arrogant about where we were on a certain level because I think every single time you do a reading of some sort you should do it when you go this yes. play is perfect yes. there's yes. nothing absolutely wrong with it and then you do the reading and you go oh my god yes. and then you start all the ways if you do a reading going why are we doing this right now? <laughs> we shouldn't be doing this in front of these people. And we started out like that, and it came across as that. And then they were going, this is the worst thing we've ever That's seen. That's right. That's yeah. I remember doing a reading once up at, up at uh, uh, it was in Albany at the uh, Empire State Institute. And it was, five, there were six actors. Five of the actors were excellent. You know, I had gone up there, and they were doing the reading of the play. And we rehearsed for a week. And five were excellent, and one wasn't. And one wasn't. So... The audience, there was a kind of an audience give and take and talk after one. Well, everybody talked about the character that this one lousy yeah, actor was playing. Something you know, wrong with the way you Right, something wrong. wrong. And it was obvious. I knew right away it was because this actress was, yeah. you know, not up to par with the other yeah. one. So you, that tilted. Yeah. And I had to, you have to understand, the playwright has to understand that then the play is going to get tilted. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and you're hearing it in a reading. But that happens in a production, too. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, so, I, I'll, I'll say. say. Exactly. Yeah. I still think young writers can learn anything. Oh, yeah. Unquestionably. Yes. Get their feet wet. And there's one other benefit of readings, too, I think, because in these days when it's so hard to get a production and you make 50 submissions before you get a theater who actually says, we want to produce this play, to have a reading every now and then just gives the playwright some kind of psychological sustenance. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I did write this. It is good. It will work. We'll right. keep hoping, and it'll I get produced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That's very good. Were you all three involved in the readings, in each one of the readings? Yes. 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 <laughs> Did we read? No. No. I meant you were there yeah, for the very much involved. That's a big job with a musical. I mean, that's very big. And, and it becomes a question of, okay, who's going to sing the song? Right. right. We are, you know, I mean, that's, we're pretty good singers, Luther, right. but we're not. You well, know. you know, that's a, that is a very good question about readings, particularly with musicals. We have a choice. Shall we go quasi-production and have people who are excellent singers, who do a job and that they're very well, and they should do these songs with which they are totally unfamiliar, mm -hmm. uh, and show off their, their <coughs> or do we, the, 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 the creators, do the very best that we can in whatever little voices that we do have and well. give the essence of it? Do you understand? Yeah. I don't think that that's been resolved as yet. You know, in the, in the history of the theater. There was also in the, in, in the workshop that we did in the fall, there was an actress, which remained nameless, who did this number, and she was a good talent. She was a good talent, and, and the number worked so-so. 
and all the producers and the people saying, that sequence is still not working. That sequence <laughs> is still not working. Yeah. I said, no, there is a singer who is a force of nature who, who I want to this. cast That's in the right. show. I yeah. We cast her in the show the exact same number it would be different. done by this singer who is a force of nature is an extraordinary moment in the show now. I won't say who it is. So but that means singer. you have to know people. Precisely, exactly. You know what yes, they do. Knowing, knowing, knowing that this moment, this song was good and correct and right, we just not we we just didn't hadn't found at that point in time the right energy for that number. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, if we had, if we had faltered, we we you know it would have been like let's trash the we're number. We're going to have to take a break now <coughs> and just stretch, and then we're going to come back and continue not only this, which is I find absolutely fascinating, and I I'm sure the audience is too. But there are going to be a lot more questions being asked from the audience to you. So everyone, please stand up. Take a break, walk we'll around with here and sit down. right down again. Because <laughs> they're coming right back to continue to set them out. And theater wing seminars on working in the theater, which are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing, and this is a seminar on playwriting, directing, and the lyricist and composer. We've got them all in together, the collaboration that goes on. And George White and Jean Dalrymple, co-chairs, will continue this discussion with these most talented people that we have, most generous of their words as well. Uh PJ, I'd like to pick up. You were about to leap in before the break with something. Well, we I'm dying to figure out what it was. Were you going to sing? I don't know. What no, no, no. <laughs> uh, we, were talk we were talking about when you, when you do a reading or it's the presentation, whether it's the creative team that does it or you get actors and you're doing it. Anyway, I went to the center stage. There were three playwrights going up there. These were going to be stage readings on, on a weekend. And all the playwrights arrived on a Monday and were assigned directors and so forth and so on. And uh, the actors were all coming in. They'd been hired from New York, and they were all coming in the next day. Uh, this was a center stage in Baltimore. Anyway, we all sat there, and they said, well, the, uh, uh, the, the head director said, now, we want each playwright to read his own play aloud. And I thought, oh, my God. And he said, how about you, PJ? Will you start? And I went, okay. My play was, uh, my play, The Octave Bridge Club, had eight women and one man, all on stage, all the time. Okay, so I started, and I thought, this is going to kill me. I'll never get through it, you know, and I did it. And the interesting thing was, I found out a lot as I went along. Mm -hmm. I mean, just in that process, myself reading it, I mean, I, I, but I would even, I was even aware of almost cuts, small cuts that we're doing. As I went along, it was, so it was, that was very interesting to me. And there were a lot of uh, places or processes, just like sometimes the first day of some rehearsals where the playwright does read we the do play. We do that. Yeah, to the, yes, at the O'Neill it was done that way. And, and uh, uh, that's a, that's a fascinating, I mean, it's a fascinating process. It's a little, a lot of work, but uh, that just happened. It was an interesting mm -hmm. that, that, the, uh, that the person that wrote it, and then you suddenly do it, and there you're, you're doing some of your work as it's going along. I think that that does give give insights. I uh, to a playwright, for instance, I've seen in the reading process playwrights bogging down, realizing their own cuts, and they're saying, "My God, this is going on forever." You know, they have to do it. What an actor does. Um, beyond that, how we've 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 talked about getting the readings, and a little bit about going into specific productions. 
how about spreading the um, the word, going beyond uh, the first reading, beyond the even the first production? Do you, well, to say Horton Foot will start, um, promote your own place? How do you do that? Does, is there a way to do that? Uh, how do you move from, let's say, the initial reading or the, even the initial production? How do you, does word get around? Do you do some of that? I think it's an act of God, really. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I think there are certain people who are, are careerists in that sense and know how to do that. I don't know how to do it. Uh, uh, I've been fortunate, I suppose, because I do get productions, and out of those productions come other productions. But I, anything that I've really set out with the determined will to do often has backfired. So I just kind of stand back and, <laughs> and write. Uh, I'm always surprised how it came about. Agent might not want to hear this. But uh, most of what has happened has been through some fluke of, 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 of a play that winds up getting in production. As we talked before, it sometimes seems to me most of the plays that I've done, except this new one, it takes about four years, it seems, before you get from the print get into production before that pr uh, production starts, just like you were saying about Shelley's Last Rotley, it took what? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a musical, and of course yeah. it would take longer. But I, um, I just, I mean, the, the, it came out, it would always come out of the blue, as he said, as uh, Horton said, you can, uh, you can really hustle, or you can try to get it, or you want to get a certain actor, or, or uh, a theater, or whatever, but... Uh, you know, luckily, I've, I, it, somebody will call or something like that, but it's, a lot of it just seems to come out of nowhere sometimes. But I've initiated a lot of things. I mean, I, you know, I would oh. call. Well, I've, I've sent, uh, you know, if there's somebody I knew, they'd say, I want to see your next player or a director I'd work with or something like that. He'd say, well, send it to me when, he, when the next one's finished or something like that. Or... Um, I wound up at the Actors Theater of Louisville because on a fluke I said, oh, to hell with it, I'll just send it to them, they'll never do it. You know, and I said, it's a, and they did. And, uh, God, I'm trying to think of uh, other, other odd circumstances. Well, well, I also think that a, a, a dynamic of working in the theater is that your peers, who you meet when you're poor and struggling, move on as you move on and then they pop up in offices working <laughs> right. at theaters have become actors oh, and you know true. and right. that everyone who you work with eventually hires the hires you or you hire them right and and i think yeah. that that's very important and you know i also think that, that after a while certain places can become somewhat like homes because you know at, at the marte performance down at new york shakespeare festival at crossroads i have various places where i go i've got this thing and i want to work on it and I know that, that, that they will not screw around with the work, that they will allow me the chance to discover and, 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 I don't know, just be lost. And I think that somehow that's very valuable because I also think that working on a play is very important to not know what you're doing because by not knowing what you're doing, you discover a deeper way of doing what you thought you knew. You know what I mean? So I think those places where you can feel secure Can you are very cast important. your mind back to when you were last on the seminar, which I think is almost 10 years? And no, we're, not that long. Not that long? You were so young looking. <laughs> <laughs> but where did you come from there? Do you remember the roads? Which you, you were so articulate then, but even more so now. Uh -huh. where, where are the homes that you 
passed along uh, the way. What happened was my show, the Colored Museum. That was Colored Museum. museum. No, th th that was actually Spunk. But the Colored Museum was uh, done at Crossroads Theater as, as mm -hmm. part of a, uh, a contest that the Dramatist Guild had sponsored. Uh, there was at five theaters, and I wasn't going to send my play out to Crossroads because I didn't think they did my kind of work. And um, which is so, and, and I also did, uh, fundamentally didn't believe in contests because I, I felt as though that you're submitting your work to a, a bunch of young readers who are just out of college who oftentimes want to impress their bosses by, by going, this is awful, this is terrible, this is disgusting. So that I, I, I always found that, that if I knew someone in the theater, they would usher my work along in a, in a much better way as opposed to a bunch of strangers, you know. So from there, uh, uh, Joe Papp. Uh, saw the show and then it was done under the public and that's when sort of things started to happen and then I did my piece Spunk which was actually done at a reading at the Mark Taper Forum. We did a workshop at the Mark Taper Forum, a production at Crossroads and then we opened up at the, at the New York Shakespeare Festival. So it was and it, it, it was that route of, of mm -hmm. each very serious nurturing mm -hmm. and then the same thing with Jelly in many respects. It was nurtured at various places. Mm -hmm. so. I also think that uh, uh, an agent is very oh, a compatible agent. I, yes. I've had one agent all my life, Lucy Crow, and uh, she's uh, been imaginative and far-seeing and help, very helpful. And one thing that I have done recently, uh, the only time I've ever taken a kind of a, an aggressive stance on my own, I have a play that, f for many reasons, I don't really want done in America right now. And I'm a great admirer of Alan Akeborn. So I'd never met him, but I asked Lucy to send the play. He has a theater of his own in England, and, and um, he loves the play, and he's trying to find a way to do it. So that's... Well, that's what you were talking about, mm. yeah. to go beyond that. I, I was thinking, uh, at the break, I was <clears throat> excuse me, telling Isabel about our newest Nobel Prize winner, Derek Wolcott, who had the, probably the roughest time of any playwright I can imagine. He grew up um, in St. Lucia, in a small island in the Caribbean, uh, moved to a slightly larger island in Trinidad with no actors, no theaters that would do his work, no scene designers, no directors, no playwrights. He came up uh, to New York, uh, went to the Circle in the Square School, learned his craft uh, in all those different things. In about six months, went back to Trinidad, started writing, directing, designing, building sets, uh, and training his own actors so he could create his own plays. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and here it is this year he won the Nobel Prize. So, right. so he also had certain, certain producers, certain key producers in his life who stood behind him, like Joe Papp and Gordon Davidson mm -hmm. and, and, and now Bob Brewstein. Mm -hmm. and yeah, but else? he had to come up here for, to do that first. We brought mm -hmm. him up in 69 and introduced him to Joe and Gordon. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but before that, you know, he had, to, he had to actually almost physically, and he literally physically built his own theater down there. It was a shed mm -hmm. in, uh, in Port of Spain. So mm -hmm. there are other ways if you need to be. Well, also, you talked about expanding horizons, about going to Russia and, and playwright as PJs did. Did, did you do a show in Russia? Yeah, I went to Russia through the uh, through the Shelikova uh, seminar, which is uh, is uh, uh, much like <laughs> a different sort of way the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, where I went in '91 with my play in Fat Freddy's Blues, and then it was chosen to go to Russia this past June, uh, and that was just a, a wild experience. Especially to hear my play done in uh, Russian, you know, with Russian actors. I was like, because there it was called Blues Tolstoy Freddy, you know, I like that. Uh, 
<laughs> but it was. Uh, I, I one of the th- I said to George earlier. I said one of the things I like about writing plays is you never know where you're going to end up. Uh, I think you have to find out where you're going to end up right now with the first mm-hmm. question. Okay, um, my name is John Francis Fox. My question is for Hart and Foot. Since part of your background as a writer was during the early days of TV, did that have any effect on your development as a playwright? Well, I, I, I was in television really mainly at the time when it was very near theater. It, we, it was not, it wasn't really like cinema at all, and uh, we had. We're limited to two or three sets. Uh, we're based in New York. We use New York actors. Um, we rehearse them as we rehearse plays. You couldn't stop them. In other words, they had to have a continuity like a play. You couldn't stop and cut. So I really used television that time to, to develop and write one-act plays, which no one wanted in those days. And uh, they since have been published as one-act plays and they're done all over. But... Uh, I learned, certainly you learn from anything, but I can't say really. I thank you. Okay, I thank you. That's interesting. My name is Tanya Young. I'd like to address a question to George C. Wolfe. Um, in your experience, what is the difference between writing a play in which the central character is a real life person as opposed to a play where all the characters are fictional? Oh, oh that's interesting. <coughs> I just think that with, with, when a character is real, you have a built in structure. Now, you can alter that structure, but ultimately, and in, in the case of Jelly, there's a, there are very certain personal and cultural and artistic truths that come with him, and how you arrange them determines on, I don't know, it's just like having this drawer with, with all these uh, objects in it, and then you can pull them out and, and put them up there, and they're contained, how you arrange them is somewhat the art of it, whereas I think that somewhat uh, with... And, and that at one point on the journey, those objects have to become personal. And your objects as well, and your demons, and your journey as well. Whereas I think when you're creating something that, and it's coming from somewhere out, out here, it's, I don't think that it's harder, but there's, it, it, I think it requires a, a, I don't want to say a deeper journey, but a more complicated one. Simply because I think every time you write a play, there is no universe. There is no right and wrong. There is no good and bad. And, and whereas in Jelly's world, Jelly grew up at a very certain time, so there was a right and a wrong and a good and bad. Whereas if I, if I was to do a play, of, you know, about Susan, I would have to invent, and, 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 but not, not the Susan Burke here that I know, but the one in my head, I would have to invent all the rules of her, of, of, of her dynamic and inform them with truths the way I see the world for, working. Whereas with Jelly, I had to figure out how my brain could work inside of his world. You know what I'm saying? Thank you. I'm Julie Kramer, and my question is also for Mr. Wolf, um, and it's kind of related. Can you talk about the amount of research that you had to do for Jelly's Last Jam? Oh, well, that's the thing which I love most. I'm working on a, a, um, a project now where I'm, I, what, it, where I'm reading every single thing I can get my hands on. It's like the, um, it, in the case of Jelly, and uh, Susan Luther probably had similar or different journeys. There were... Um, that was the music is the first place because there's so much emotion and truth and and history in that music. Then uh, going to New Orleans and, uh, and and hanging around him and meeting with this old guy named Bill. God, I've forgotten his last name. Who's like this expert on Jelly Roll Morton and hearing someone who loved him dearly, you know, speak of him and and just uh, <clears throat> reading the, the, the all, all all the literature 
of, of the day. So you sort of find out what, what the rules and the attitudes of, of the people were. And it's, I, I, I just think it's very exciting because you have to surrender your universe and go inside of a whole other one and, 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 not, and not just study the character, but his world, the Creole world. What was the, uh, well, New York in the 40s? What was that? And not just from the music, but from the uh, the uh, the the uh, the art, the the um, I don't know. It's it, you know what I'm saying. It's it it, it it isn't just the person. It's their world. It's their God. It's their fears. It's it's Do the crime. Do you want to that, Susan? Because I think you would come into that too. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's immersing oneself in it. it it's going to live for a while in that world. Uh, in order to be able to to respond as a character from that world, it's it's not just the sound of it or the way it looks. It's attitudes. It's the most basic things about human experience, and then being able to respond mm -hmm. as one of those people. It's the context. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Lauren Scalprin, and this is to Wiley Hausman. Uh, does the agent take on a project and nurture the production, or does he concentrate on one aspect as the director to the playwright? Every every show is different. Every project is different. But f I mean, for instance, in the case of Jelly's Last Jam, I mean, I became George's agent in late February of '88, and the show was already, you know slightly in progress and I mean I, I worked on it in one way or another with the often with the producer especially on a musical it's very collaborative with the producer really virtually every day until until it opened and until after it opened so you stay on casting too you discuss everything you know it, it everything comes together when it's really working right and then there are situations where you um, you you find the producer and maybe it's a lure at theater and you make the deal and you disappear for a while and then you come back during previews. Um, it depends on it's a, each dynamic has its own specifics. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Hello, my name is Victor Cena, and this question is directed towards Mr. Barry. Uh, you have so many <coughs> terrific roles for women in your play, The Octet Bridge Club. And as a man, do you find it harder to write for women? No. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I don't. I think the, the, uh, the Octet Bridge Club was based on my mother and her seven sisters. So that uh, I had a, you know, I was, uh, I had memories of what I could remember of them. And that's, that's the way I began. But I've, uh, no, I've never had trouble writing. Uh, I think I write good roles for women. And... <laughs> Come and see the new play, and you'll see. You uh, but I've never had uh, no, I've never had that trouble or either. I, uh, I, um, I don't know. I just do it. Thank you, Mildred Clinton. Uh, I would like to address this to Susan Birkenhead, please. Now, as a lyricist who did an adaptation of a very well-known play on um, "What About Love." Can you tell us the differences between doing something like that and then just starting from square one with a musical? Um, well, that was that, that was a very different, different yet the same. Um, that was an adaptation of a Murray Shiskel play, and it was 
getting Murray Shiskel's sound and um, an attitude, sensibility into my head and, and becoming an extension of his voice. In this case, it was going into a world and, as I said before, learning to immerse myself in that world, to immerse myself in a whole culture, um, which was an extraordinary experience for me and, and a great blessing. Um, I was invited into a whole other culture and, and allowed to exist within that culture and, and to begin to write as a part of that culture. Um, it was an extraordinary experience. Also because George is a playwright unlike any other playwright I know. And so it was constantly looking for things in the dark and, and looking for things with no precedent. Just finding our way and saying, I guess we'll try this. Thank you. I'm Howard Goldberg. I have a question for Mr. Foote and Mr. Barry. What happens when the writer's vision is different from the director's vision of a play? Well, I've really rarely had this problem because usually I, I have found that um, it's best to try to find out the different visions before you start working together. And if I feel any, if I feel that we don't, not compatible and don't understand, I mean, it's perfectly true they can have a very valid uh, vision that uh, you don't think is correct for your play. And I think it's only sensible to, to, to talk this out before you begin rehearsals. And if it's so, then I suggest you don't work together, because I think there's nothing worse in the theater than this kind of war between playwright and director. Yeah, I'd add to that too. I think this. I, I, uh, I've not found that, and usually I found if, if there has been some trouble along the way, it's usually me, the playwright, that hasn't mm -hmm. completed something within the script. I mean, if 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 you're starting to 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 uh, work together, you know. I mean, I qu I question that myself, but uh, most of the time I've had good experiences. Hard said by knowing ahead of time who you're working with. I mean, it's really, <laughs> boy, is it important. You know, because the wars, the I hate the wars, too. There's enough, there's enough that happens in any production without warring, you know, without that coming in. It doesn't I mean, you really mean that you don't welcome suggestions from the director and, and value them and want to, to use his wisdom because certain things are not working or whatever. But if, if the basic understanding is... is, is not there. I don't think it's ever going to work. Yeah. yeah. I think it really is like a marriage. It's therefore, before you marry, you, you go on a series of dates. That's right. Yeah. And you talk, <laughs> and, you, and you see what that, you know, is this marriage going to work? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. But a lot of that does relate to experience, too. I think a new playwright coming on and somebody, a director says, I want to oh, do your yeah. play, it's yeah. a pretty seductive situation yes. and can get them so that you can get, and, yes. and I think the experience and knowledge of the, of but the I, I, I do feel, at least for myself, even as a young playwright, I've backed away. Mm -hmm. And I think it's suicide if you don't, because Lawrence Langner once said to me that failure is terrible, but a failure that you feel that you've 
been part of and you've helped and you've fostered is the worst value. Yeah. Right. I'd like a, a quick question for the panel. Can you tell us what your next project is, what you're thinking of doing? Let me start this start the, we're going to start oh. here. Oh. Go around quickly. Well, I'm trying to get, hoping to get money for a film for my play for The Widow Claire. Uh, I hope Mr. Aikman finds the money to do my play in England. And I'm finished a play which uh, I think the Alley Theatre is going to do in December called A Young Man from Atlanta. Susan? Not much. Uh, <laughs> Susan? Um, I'm in the middle of a, a movie now, an animated feature, um, and having a wonderful time. Um, George and uh, Luther and I will be doing another project, which is too early to talk about, but that is my great joy in life, to work with these two men again. And um, a couple of other projects that I have begun, but this is my, my greatest joy. Hmm. Uh, I'm working on a screenplay about a pygmy. Uh, I'm working on a play called Boz and Buzzard, The Two-Headed Monster Dances a Jig in the Nightmare Review. Uh, and I'm reading. And read, because working on Jelly, it drained my brain of images, so I'm in the process of trying to stock back up. You know? <laughs> um, my new play, which I will be directing, A Distance from Calcutta, will be opening in January at the York Theatre, so I'm involved with that. I, uh, another play, which originated at the O'Neill and Fat Freddy's Blues, may be going into production very soon. And I've just finished a new play called Jump the Train at River Point. So. Lucy. <laughs> well, presently I'm working on um, some concert pieces for the... Uh, Canadian Brass, which is a, a chamber group I've worked with for some years, and uh, also on uh, recordings for the same group. I have to add that the reason I'm doing so much Canadian Brass now is because they're my regular clients that I had uh, been, um, because of my colleagues over here, <laughs> I've been forced to put on the back burner for the past two years. <laughs> so I'm really in the process of catching up with that. Also, uh, as I'm sure it is with most of us, that we're all reading various things. I have a couple of very interesting projects that um, promise to come into fruition, but as you say in the theater, it's bad luck to talk about it before it's right up to the minute. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think that my project is to have more time for these seminars and, and these wonderful people that are on it, and I find constantly there is not enough time to get all the information that they have to give to us. I hope someday we'll have more and more time. But in the meantime, I want to thank you all for being here, and this has been the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre, and this seminar has been devoted to the playwright and director, the composer, and the lyricist, and their roles in it. And I don't know when we've had so much wonderful and so much generous words coming out. I'm delighted to be president of an organization that can call upon these people. I'm delighted to be able to say that the American Theatre Wing, which has been doing this for so many years, continues to do it, and only with the help of people in the theater. I thank you all for being here, and this is just one of the Wing seminars on working in the theater, which are coming to you 
from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located right in the heart of Times Square. Thank you all for being here. <laughs>